I invite you to stand as we come for the reading of God's Word today. Uh, We'll turn uh, to the second uh, book of Samuel, uh, chapter 7, as we look at verses 18 through 24. So again, I invite you to turn there in your copies of God's Word as we come and as we hear the very Word of the living and the true God. And hear the word of the Lord from 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning at verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the matter of man, O Lord God? And what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you. According to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel? The one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for Himself as a people. To make for Himself a name. And to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land. Before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt. The nations and their gods. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to these words of Holy Scripture this morning, and we pray through the power of Your Holy Spirit that You would apply these words onto our hearts, that You might give us more light and understanding. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As we began last week, uh, this uh, new sermon series uh, talking about what it means to improve your baptism. We talked last week uh, from uh, the words of the prophet Ezekiel. As Ezekiel uh, gave us a window into the depravity of the human heart. Of the wickedness of the world. But what was unique about Ezekiel's vision of what he showed us was that wickedness was not what the Canaanites were doing. It wasn't what the prophets of Molech were up to. It wasn't what uh, the temple prostitutes in Ephesus were engaged in. Now what Ezekiel showed us last week was uh, the wickedness that had come into the house of God. And of course, as we saw, it wasn't just any old house uh, that this had been shown, but it was in the very house of the living God, in the temple in Jerusalem. One of the things that we talked about last week was the importance of remembering what it means to have been baptized, to have the name of God placed upon you. One of the things, of course, that we do when we uh, place water on the head of someone who is being baptized is we are saying that they belong unto the Lord. We as parents, as we baptize our children, are saying that these, uh, these, this infant 
belongs to the Lord. That the Lord has given this child to me. The Lord has given me this child to raise up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. This child whom the minister is laying his hands on, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, is making a claim upon that life. And what we are to do then as those who have grown up in the faith, or if you are baptized when you are an adult, regardless of what point in time the sign was applied, what it signified was something about your identity. About who you are. Of course, when we look in the Scriptures, one of the things we see uh, that God calls upon His people to do is that in remembering who they are, they are then to live in light of that truth. It's interesting how often in the Bible... Uh, when the prophets are speaking, when Jesus is speaking, when the apostles are speaking of, uh, of man's responsibility to God, in almost every case, I'm sure there's one or two where this isn't, but in almost every case, that call to faithfulness begins with a reminder of who God is. And last week we used the example of of the Ten Commandments, of their being given to Moses on Sinai. And before uh, God reads to him the first commandment, you you shall have no other gods before me, we have the reminder that God had brought His people out of bondage uh, to slavery in Egypt, and that He was bringing them to the Promised Land. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. And again, that's why Israel had fallen into the deplorable state in which they brought the idols of the world into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, had moved aside uh, the the elements of the temple that were there to sacrifice to Jehovah, and instead had lifted up prayers to Tammuz and to Molech, and uh, to Ashtaroth and to the many other gods of the age. In fact, at the end of that passage, we had the very priests of God uh, with their backs to the temple, looking to the east and worshiping uh, this God of their own making. And again, the point that Ezekiel was making and the point that the Holy Spirit was, was trying to bring across to us is they had gotten to this point Because they had forgotten what God had done for them. And brothers and sisters, as we come to this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see a similar attitude, a similar reminder, a similar call from King David unto us on this day. Now it takes a different form. the, The prophet Ezekiel is showing us these things as a warning as a testimony, as a, as a, a kind of a shout to us, say, hey, if you forget the Lord God, this is what you're going to become. And of course, what does the Bible tell us is the consequence of that kind of idolatry. Well, it's not just temporary judgment, but it's eternal judgment in the fires of hell. In the reality of the damnation that comes to all who are outside of the kingdom of God. 
And again, the point of that is, as a reminder, is that none of us, no saint in the history of the church, no faithful Israelite, was ever saved by the application of water upon their body. Whether it was just a little, a little dampness, or whether it was poured, or whether they were dunked all the way under. The amount of water, the act of baptism, is not what brings us into the kingdom. Again, that's a sign. It's a, it's a visible representation of what takes place in that act. That we are brought into the kingdom. And again, we're not brought into the kingdom through baptism. But again, it's a recognition that we are in the kingdom. And how are those who are in the kingdom supposed to act? Again, those who are in the kingdom are supposed to act like they are citizens of the kingdom. If you go to the nation of Saudi Arabia and you are a woman, are you allowed to drive? Well, you're not supposed to. And what happens if you do? Can you, when you get pulled over by the Saudi Arabian police, can you pull out your South Carolina license and say, hey, it's legal where I'm from? Yeah, how, how are they going to respond to that? They're going to say, oh, well, well, oh, you know, the laws of South Carolina, they, they trump the laws here in Saudi Arabia. Go ahead and, and keep going. Is that, is that how that's going to work? Well, of course that's not going to, to be how it works. If we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, then we are to obey the laws that God has given to us as members of that kingdom. And again, we, we obey the law of God not to get into the kingdom, not to stay in the kingdom, but because we love the kingdom of God. We love His law. We love His wisdom. We love His goodness unto us. And so again, while last week was kind of a negative example of why it's important for us to improve on our baptism, to remember our baptism, this morning we're going to look at a passage where David is again bringing these prayers before the Lord out of thanksgiving for what God has done for him. And that's part and parcel of what it means again to improve. It means to remember. It means to remember what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that, that having our sins forgiven, having us be, be, being made new creatures in Christ, again, it was not something that we did. Again, we didn't purchase our citizenship in heaven. All right? We didn't enter into a lottery to get into heaven, you know, hoping that our name gets picked out of the hat. We didn't serve for eight years and then go take a citizenship test in order to gain entrance to the city of God. What the Scriptures tell us is that we were like Israel. We were like Abram, the father of many nations. And where is Abram in Genesis chapter 12? Is he in Jerusalem? Has he picked up and moved his family and built a temple in Jerusalem? in the hopes that God will pick him to be the father of many nations? No. Abram's minding his own business, right? He's hanging out in Ur. Right? That's where Terah is from. That's where his family's from. He's just doing what people in Ur do, right? He's being a man of the Chaldeans. But God comes to him and He calls him out of the land of the Chaldeans. And what does He tell Abram? He's saying, I've chosen you out of all the men in the world to do what? To bear my promise. To be 
the, 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 the beginning of my kingdom. And of course, if we, we read the previous 11 chapters, it's not like you know, this kind of came out of nowhere. You know, God had, had made the promise to Adam and Eve, right? And we went over this in Sabbath school this morning. You know, the, the, the idea there, again, is that God isn't kind of randomly picking people throughout history, hoping one of them gets it right. But God, from before the foundation of the world, had ordained that all these things would come to pass. That God, who is God over all things, is not a God who reacts to the world. God had established that Abram would be this man. And that out of him would come uh, this day where we see David being crowned king of Israel. Given a promise by the Lord. And again, it's worthwhile for us to, to step, take a step back and see what the promise uh, that God has made. Again, in chapter 7, it begins with Nathan, the prophet. You remember something about Nathan the prophet. What, what, what kind of relationship uh, does Nathan and David have? We, we, we see in, uh, the, the, in 2 Samuel that Nathan will be the one who comes and, 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 and comes before David and will uh, confront him over his sin with Bathsheba. And we see that this relationship that Nathan and David had. Nathan the prophet said to him, Go do that all is in your heart. For the Lord is with you. It happened that night. The word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord. Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt. Even to this day. But have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. And David, again, Nathan being told this by God, is told by God to go and reveal these things to David. And in the midst of these things, we see in verse 12, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. It will come from your body and I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house in My name and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. I will be His Father and He shall be My Son. If He commits iniquity, I will chasten Him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But My mercy shall not depart from Him. As I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Again, this is what is moving David to come before the Lord in prayer at this moment. That God has made a promise to David. Not only has David been anointed the king over Israel, but he has something that Saul didn't have. He has this assurance from his heavenly Father uh, that he will not allow his mercy to depart from him. Of course, when we, we read these, this covenant that God makes with David here in 2 Samuel 7, you know, how ultimately is this fulfilled? Well, we know that Solomon commits iniquity. In fact, Solomon commits a lot of iniquity. But what's the promise here? The promise is, is that his mercy will not depart from the house of David. And does it depart from the house of David? Do we see God's hand removed from the house of David? 
Now, in fact, we see even in the midst of the discipline which will come down upon the nations, or upon the nation of Israel, you know, when the ten tribes are scattered among the winds for their idolatry, when the southern two tribes are sent to Babylon, can does God remove His mercy from Israel even in the midst of these judgments? Well, of course He doesn't. And why is that? Because ultimately, who is this covenant about? Who is the seed who, upon whom God will establish His kingdom? Of course, we who live in the New Testament era, we who live in the, in the time of the New Covenant, know that the ultimate fulfillment of this is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the seed. The seed that was promised to, to Eve. The seed that is promised to Abram. The seed that is promised to David. And what are we told about uh, this son? I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chase him with the rods of men and with the blows of the sons of men, but my mercy shall not depart from him. Now, of course, we know and confess that Jesus Christ never sinned. In fact, we confess not only that Jesus Christ never sinned, but Jesus could not sin. We're told in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 by the Apostle Paul that He was tempted in every way we are tempted, yet without sin. And it's important for us to remember that about our Lord, that it's not just that He didn't sin, but that He could not sin. And that's the nature of who He is as God incarnate. God come in the flesh. But what do we also know about the Lord Jesus? We know that He went to the cross for our transgressions. We know that He went to the cross bearing the wrath of God upon Himself that was due unto us. Again, remember something else that, that, that God tells Nathan and, and to David here. He says, I will be His Father, you and my Son, if He commits iniquity, I will chasten Him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. Again, we confess this, that this happened to our Savior. That He had the blows of men upon Him. That He was chastened for our transgressions. And that's an important thing for us to confess and to remember. You know, again, that this has, has come to be, come to pass upon the Lord Jesus. But again, remember what verse 15 says. But my mercy shall not depart from Him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And you ever wondered why the Lord Jesus quotes Psalm 22 on the cross? Of course, we, we have the first line, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, in the Bible, when, uh, when, when people quote a verse like that, they're not kind of proof texting, right? They're not just kind of grabbing things out of the air. You know, because, of course, the Bible didn't have chapters and verses uh, when the Lord Jesus was here with us. Those are a later invention. What the writers of Scripture want us to do is to go back and to read the context of those verses. And what does Psalm 22 tell us? Psalm 22 tells us explicitly of the kingdom of God. It tells us of the nature of the kingdom. That God will never forsake His people. That He will not forsake the fathers. He will not forsake the Israelites. He will not forsake the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And why is that? It goes to something that David says in his prayer. In verse 23, he says, And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth, whom God went 
to redeem for Himself as a people, to make for Himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. Because again, what do we confess? We confess that God has redeemed us from our sins. We confess that Jesus the Christ, born of the Virgin, was God Himself. We confess that God, having redeemed us from sin, has given us what? He has given us eternal life. And that's what the word there means when it says uh, that this house will be established forever before you. And your throne should be established forever. Again, this is what we have received in the Lord Jesus. We have received this promise, this eternal promise, that there will never be a day where the Lord our God will not be king over creation. That the Lord Jesus Christ will not be king over the nations and over His church. And why is this the case? Again, why is David giving thanks for these things? Why is he coming before the Lord in thanksgiving for the reality of these truths? Because notice how he begins the prayer in verse 18. He says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? You know, if we can learn anything from the Psalms of David, we can learn that David knew himself. He knew his heart. He knew who he was before the Lord. He knew that he was unworthy of these things. Again, when David is sitting before the Lord here, again, he's not kind of having this false humility before the Lord. Because what's the reality of, 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 of these things? You know, in, like I said, in Sabbath school, we, we looked at Genesis chapter 3. And what do we see in Genesis chapter 3? We see Adam and Eve hiding in the garden from the Lord. You know, we see this, this kind of common uh, symbol throughout the Scriptures of men hiding from the judgment of God. But what do we see again out of David? We see David sitting before the Lord. Sitting there, uh, bringing these things up to God, knowing that He is not worthy of these things. That, that, that He has nothing to hide before the Lord because He knows the Lord knows all things. That includes the wickedness of His own heart. And that's why David will respond to the words of Nathan later on in the book of 2 Samuel. Because David knows himself. And he knows he's a sinner. He knows he has fallen short of the glory of God. And again, that's why he says there, Who am I, Lord God? Because the testimony that each one of us have before the Lord is who are we before the Lord? Who are we to receive the grace of God? Who are we to be called out of all of the people of the world to receive the blessings and the goodness of God? When we, we, we sit down before the Lord, you know, do we kind of sit there and say, well, you know, God, I, you know, I really deserved these things. You know, I've worked hard this week. You know, I, I've been pretty good. You know, I, I didn't uh, you know, you know, take more than one donut from the, uh, from the place that said I was only allowed to have one, even though nobody was looking. You know, I, I did the right thing. 
You know, I'm a pretty good person. You know, is, is that again? David is not coming before the Lord with that mindset. And he's coming before the Lord, testifying that he is wholly unworthy of these things. Because again, he knows himself, and he knows uh, that he has fallen short, that he has sinned before the Lord. But God, uh, through His mercy, has called him unto Himself. Again, not because of anything he has done but purely because God is a God full of compassion, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in mercy and truth. Again, is this how we understand God? Is this how we understand our place in His kingdom? Again, if we we understand it in that way, then our heart will be one of thanksgiving before the Lord. It will be an attitude of thanksgiving before God. And we on Wednesday night we talked about the mercy of God, and that one of the things that's important about understanding the mercy of God is looking at the way that God is not only merciful to us in the big things, but the way that God is merciful to us in what we consider to be the small things. And we we can think back in our lives and and think about how God's providence ordered us to be at the right place at the right time in order for us to meet our spouse. I'm sure lots of us have have uh, you know, stories about how if, if we turned left or right or if we had taken this job or done this thing, we never would have met our husband or our wife. And of course, we we see the mercy of God in that. We see the way that God has ordered all things in order to bring us together with, with that person whom He has set forward to be our spouse. But again, think about all the, the little things that we see from day to day, the way in which the mercy of God is evident unto us. Again, these are the kind of things that David is thinking of here as he's coming before the Lord. Again, he's using these big words. He's talking about these big things. But again, he understands that God is the God over all things. He is the God who has given this promise unto him. So what can he do but come before the Lord and give thanks unto Him? It's part of what we do, of course, in Sunday morning worship. When we are lifting up our voices into the heavens, what are we getting praise for? Are we singing because we don't want to look weird? Because we, we, we have to sing? We're singing because our hearts are full of joy, of thanksgiving for what God has done for us. We we can't wait to speak unto the God of heaven. Again, that's what we're doing when we're singing. Again, we are speaking unto the heavens. Again, that's one of the beauties, of course, of the Psalms is is we're singing uh, these words that God's people have sang uh, for generations, for hundreds and thousands of years. Bringing their thanksgivings unto the Lord in these written prayers, in these written words that we get from David, we get from Asaph, we get from Solomon and Moses. Again, that common refrain in the Psalms over and over again is the reminder that God is the one who has done these things. God is the one who is going to deliver me from my transgressions. God is the one who is going to bless me with peace and with comfort and with strength and with all of the things that I need. Because again, where where does Saul fall short? 
Again, Saul received the anointing of the Lord. Saul was made king over Israel. But what do we see Saul in his day-to-day life? What do we see Saul as he is making decisions before God? And one of the the great events, of course, of Saul's life that gives evidence to his lack of thanksgiving, his lack of understanding who he was in the Lord our God, is when he's troubled, where does he go? He goes to the witch of Endor. He goes to the witch of Endor, and what does he want the witch of Endor to do? He wants the witch of Endor to call Samuel to come and talk to him. Now, Samuel is a wise man. You know, if I needed advice, I mean, Samuel would be a good guy to go to. But what's the problem? Samuel's dead. Samuel's not there to give him that wisdom. But who is there to provide Saul with what he needs in that moment? Of course, the Lord our God is present with Saul. The Lord our God has sent His prophets unto Saul. But He wants to talk to Samuel. He wants to go to a witch to have this done. Again, the, the attitude that we see in Saul gives evidence to where his heart is, where his faith is, where his trust is. Of course, when we think of kings and, and we think of the great king, think of the Lord Jesus. Where did the Lord Jesus go in His moments of distress? Where did the Lord Jesus go when He was being put upon by the world around Him? We're talking about Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Where did He go in these moments? How many times do we hear in the Scriptures, in the Gospels, it's saying that Jesus went off to be alone? And what was He doing when He went off to be alone? He was lifting up His needs unto His heavenly Father. He was receiving, again, the mercy of God in the midst of these things. Again, Jesus was perfect and is perfect. Yet He needed and knew that He needed uh, to give thanks unto the Lord, to bring these knees before Him. He knew that He needed the mercy of God. He needed God's grace in in the midst of these things. And you notice in Jesus' prayers as they're given to us in the Scriptures, what does Jesus always do when He begins to pray? Again, the Lord's Prayer is our example. And the Lord's Prayer begins by saying, Our Father who art in heaven. What is Jesus saying there? What can we learn from that? What does it mean to call somebody your Father? Well, in a strictly biological sense, fathers give us life. Again, none of us was born of the flesh by our own desire. You know, it's not like we were kind of, you know, in kind of a soul state out in the world, out in the universe somewhere, and said, you know what? I think I want to be born. And we apply for it, and then we come to the earth and we're given a body. You know, that's not how it works, right? The Lord our God, you know, gives us life in the, in the midst of conception. Right? And we receive you know, through our parents this life, this soul, this, this gift. And the Lord Jesus again returns that thanks unto the Lord who has given these things so that others might be what? That others might be redeemed through His life and through His work. 
So brothers and sisters, as we again go through this life that God has given to us, and as we uh, testify before the Lord that we are weak vessels, that we are unable to deal with the trials that we face from day to day, and how is improving our baptism going to help us? Again, looking back to our baptism is a way to remind ourselves that we have had that sign placed upon us. That sign which signifies that we belong body and soul to the Lord our God who has given to us this new life in Jesus Christ that His mercy might never depart from us because His mercy is in Christ. And Christ is our identity. Christ is who we are. And we can go from this place this morning testifying to this truth and testifying to this reality that our faith is not in the things of the flesh, but is in the promise and the fulfillment of that promise in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Gracious